Hello and welcome to Dragon's Demise, the podcast about what happens on, around, and behind the tabletop. I'm Greg B., joined as always by Jacob. Hello. And today we're going to be taking a spoiler-free look at time stories. But first, let's talk about what we've been playing. So first, I actually got to go to Labyrinth this past week, and I went to their weekly game night and got my butt kicked at Scythe. Wow, that's pretty noteworthy. I mean, you love Scythe. I do love Scythe, and it was one of those days that I was like, I'm going to go to Labyrinth, I have to pick up, up a few things, like hang out, talk, but I'm not going to play, I'm not going to stay too late. And then it came to 10.30, and it was like the store was closing, I was still the last person there. Yep. And there I was like, okay, this always seems to happen. But that being said, it was a lot of fun. I played uh, with Kathleen and one other person, and the other person had never played Scythe before. So it was one of those, we have to teach someone new how to play. I got to you know, flex my own teaching muscles a bit. Sure. So I went and explained uh, the game itself, how it played and all that. And then we started. We went off. We, we played. I was playing Poland because when of I have a choice, of course I am. Polonia, that is my country. And Kathleen was playing Saxony. Mm-hmm. And uh, the other person was playing the uh, Nords. Okay. So, you know, pretty different all in all. And it was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. It was actually, it was interesting because this game was the first game that I'd ever seen anyone get to 18 on the popularity scale. Really? Yes. I managed to get to 18 and the person who ended up winning, she got to like 16 or something like that. Both of us were all the way up there. In the top tier. Interesting. I think I've seen that once before. I think the very first game that I played, you know, the popularity track's pretty prominent yeah. and, you know, features into a lot of the scoring aspects. Mm-hmm. So I think myself and at least one other player from the first time I played prioritized the popularity track pretty heavily. Yeah, but it's just really, the popularity track is hard to get up. That's true. It, it, it's it's very true. Very difficult. The reason that I got all the way up there was because of a few things. First of all, I was playing uh, Polonia, which has the ability to pick two out of the three effects on each card when you, uh, when you do that. And one of them almost always gives you popularity, and yeah. the other one, you have to pay for something, and one of them gives you popularity. So yeah, uh, I was I used those very heavily. And then also the factory card that I got actually had pay one power for two uh, popularity. Wow, that's really powerful. Yeah, exactly. And I, I maxed out the power track immediately at the very beginning, and then, uh, and then started paying it to get uh, more popularity. Right. So that was good. And then the, the other person was really high in popularity. What she did was she, at the very beginning, I believe that it's buildings. So whenever anyone builds a building, like uh, if you enlist that person, mm-hmm. like whenever anyone uses the building action, you get popularity. Mm-hmm. So that's what she used. So whenever we, we were building, boom, she got that. Sure. She ended up winning, got 92 points, I believe. That's um, really high. Yeah. Yeah, in my experience, it was quite high scoring. And then the second place was Kathleen. She had like 80 something, and I was down in the hole with 62. Right. Um, Which is, in the games that I've played, 62 is high enough to be competitive for victory. Yeah. Yeah. I was pretty much like one turn away from like getting a whole bunch of points. It was just the the mistiming that uh, Kathleen just ended the game Hmm. immediately. Where if I had had one more chance, like I would have gotten at least a few more points and been able to 
kick some other people off and move sure. some other people and that sure. kind of stuff. Yeah, it's so, all about timing. So yeah, I, I mistimed that a little bit, but it was still a lot of fun to play. I really enjoyed it. And I played without the special edition pieces, which was a little bit, you know, I, I, I like my little, like, cool pieces and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> You're spoiled. Yeah, I'm a little bit spoiled with, like, the metal coins and, like, that kind of stuff. But, I mean, the regular pieces for it are still pretty good. So, right. Yeah. So it's not like I was missing much. But other than that, we actually just finished the game on Mystic Veil. Yeah, and speaking of ridiculously high scores, so we were playing with the second expansion, Veil of the Wild, which introduces a couple of new mechanics, one of which is, they're called Eclipse cards. Mm -hmm. Basically, they are advancements, which are allowed to be slotted underneath other advancements, which Mm -hmm. is previously, you know, that wasn't allowed. So that sort of adds a a level of complexity there. Um, And then they also introduce something called Leaders. Leaders are cards that take up the entire top, middle, bottom row of a single card um, and have very powerful effects. They have lots of you know icons on them they give you powerful abilities so between the two of those things as well as some of the new sort of thematic elements introduced in this expansion i think there's just sort of a a power creep element because you ended the game with 66 points Yep. you won i had 44 points which was again high enough not even just to be competitive for victory i'm pretty sure that was higher than any winning score i had seen before in this game just because, you know, each of the leader's abilities, my leader was worth 15 points on his own at the end of the game. Your leader over the course of the game earned you, I think, upwards of 20 points. I think, it, no, it was upwards of 40 points, honestly. Yeah, and so just lots and lots of power creep there. That said, we love Mystic Veil. Yes. This expansion is no exception. It introduces lots of new aspects. One of those is a focus on strategies that are different than the sort of go-to strategy you know the base Mm -hmm. game was really all about how do you optimize your growth how do you get as many of your cards onto the field in a single turn as you can and sort of sweeping the board that way yeah whereas this expansion introduces lots of cards that say if you spoil take victory points and then take another turn or gain mana or victory points equal to the number of cards below seven in your field Mm -hmm. so it's actually a way to sort of push back against that flood the board with cards and instead focus on smaller decks making those viable and competitive which i really appreciate because you know diversity of deck archetypes is is important for a game oh yeah for sure i i really like that they added that i went for a similar strategy but at the same time it did you know rather than just the old like you know you just need growth to cancel out the uh, the spoil like i actually did want the decay tokens in on my field so i didn't just want to get, discard them right uh, because that's what got me a lot of points but it's just very interesting how they really focused on using the decay using the spoil mechanic as a benefit not just a detriment mm-hmm. so i really really liked that quite a bit yeah it was definitely worth picking up if you are a fan of mystic veil vale. veil vale of the wild is yes. the name of the expansion definitely worth checking out so those are the board games that we've been playing. And then you also had a chance to play D&D, another one of your League of One-Shots yep. games. Yes, it did. And uh, this was another game by one of the people that we stream with, Nick. He plays Zombicide with us. He was the GM for this, and this is the second time he's done it. And it's the second time we've had a 
pretty much, I think this one was like a nine hour session. Jesus. We started on Friday at like 7.30, ended at like 3.45 or like 4 a.m. Yeah. It was pretty epic, but it was also really grueling. It was, it was fun, though. It was really unique. He went and used the Myconids, which I actually really like. They're mm. like these fungal people, pretty yeah, much. classic D&D uh, monsters. Exactly. And, and they're just a lot of fun. He actually made them so that they, they were worshipping a cult. And he added so much to like the lore and that kind of stuff so that they, they were evil in this case and All that right. kind of thing. There were a ton of slimes and a ton of Myconids in, the, in this one. Okay. Were you in a cave? We were underground. Okay. Yes. yes. This sounds very cavernous. Yes. It was extremely cavernous, and just the exploration aspect of it was a lot of fun. We did have quite a few fights, and the last one was the epic one, because of course it was. Of course, Um, yeah. That's just good design. Yeah, so we had like this fight on this ledge at one point, and then managed to find a space that we can hide. And we took a long rest to get everything back, and you know, got ready for the the big, big fight. So we go down, and we see in front of us... Like, a whole bunch of these myconids and other creatures, like, even, like, these giant mushroom golem things that are just, like, large creatures that will charge at you and, like, smash you against the wall. Huh. Or, like, you know, charge at you and give you a flying uppercut that sends you flying across the whole uh, board. Sure. So, what we did was, we had a very interesting party composition. Because we had n- pretty much no melee fighters. Interesting is a word, yes. Everyone was either magic or ranged in some way. So, uh, I had recently gotten the Boots of Flying. Of course you did. Because they're amazing. You get four hours of flight on those, and like they recharge uh, two hours per 12 hour of non-use. Sure. So, I mean, like you, know, you need a bit of time to do it, but it's four hours of flying. And you can turn them off. It's not like you have to do that at one time. You can take like two minutes here, two minutes there. Kind of right. Thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what I did at that point, we all set up on this ledge. And we got a surprise round. So I had already cast invisibility on myself and our wizard. Okay. Our wizard climbed on my back. <laughs> and we flew above this thing. Oh, my God. And we're raining down raining fireballs. Yep. There it is. Yep. <laughs> so, yeah, we were pretty much just like, I think that we wiped out most of the people because we hit with, I think, five or even six fireballs. Okay. And uh, then we just had, like, the you know, the more powerful yeah, people that were sure. left. Just soften them up. You yeah. Know, with a wizard riding piggyback on a whatever you are. I'm a warlock. Yeah, warlock with his boots. Yep. Little winged boots. Yep, he was he was on me. I was just uh, throwing my Eldritch Blast too. At one point, I think I hellish rebuked someone, which is always fun. Yep. And uh, so we managed to kill them all. And then we had like this side part of the quest where it was like, you know, yeah, you have to find out what happened to these people that went missing. But also, if you find this specific crystal and you bring it back, uh, you know, your reward goes from three hundred gold coins per person to thirteen hundred gold coins per person. So we were. Yeah, you pretty, found the crystal. We found the crystal. Yeah. And we, what we found it in was a giant ass slime. <laughs> okay. So this thing was huge and it was being fed by uh, the Myconids were sacrificing the people that they found to this slime by, like, you know, bleeding them dry into, like, this well, pretty much. 
Holy shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was, it was quite uh, graphic. Yeah. And this slime apparently also had hypnotic abilities. So, like, because of, like, what it had, like, in it, floating in it, it was almost, like, hypnotizing some people. Interesting. And, yeah, when we went down there and started, like, fighting it and that kind of stuff, I wasn't really dealing too much damage because Eldritch Blast, I mean, it's good and it hits him, but it's like, 1d10 damage per shot and I get 2d10. Not bad. Yeah. But I was like, no, I need to do something, like, a little bit more. And I, I yelled to our healer, I'm about to do something stupid. And then went over to the slime where the crystal was and plunged my hands into it to grab the crystal. Okay, yeah. At least you gave your healer fair warning. Yes. And so what that let me do is when it hit me, let me go ahead yeah, and do Hellish Rebuke because otherwise it wasn't going to hit me and I wasn't going to be able to use my 40, 10 points of fire damage right. against it. Yeah, no, you got to make use of what you have. So yeah, it nearly killed me, but... I did manage to do that, and it was by before its next turn came about, it was already dead. Right. So we did that, and then we found that in the next room, when we went to look in, it's like, at first we think it's just a pool of water. And then we look, and it turns out that it is a slime the size of, like, a lake that has been dormant here. It's almost like the slime god. You should probably leave. We did. Okay. Good we, job. we took our shit and we're like smart peace. We yeah. are not in the mood for uh, angering a god of yeah. slime. A colossal plus plus slime. Yeah, that that would not have been a good idea. No. So yeah, it, it was a really good session though. I I quite enjoyed it, and I'm looking forward to the next ones. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of a lot of fun. Yeah, for sure. And well, that's a look at what we've been playing. Greetings, agents. Bob here. Today, you'll be conducting an investigation into the game Time Stories. This is obviously a very meta investigation, and you will have 20 time units to complete it. Good luck. Alright, there we go. On the mission. Let's go over Time Stories. So, this is going to be a spoiler-free review. We are not going to talk about any of the story elements, at least not past the fact that there are story elements. That there, yeah, at least not past the fact that there are story elements. But there is actually quite a bit to talk about with the game itself. Right. So first off, you, the way that you start is that you are agents in this futuristic time that are about to get sent to a different time in order to prevent a certain event from happening or fix something that has already happened. Right. You're basically time cops. You're going back to fix anomalies or prevent anomalies from ever happening in the first place. Exactly. And so when you get these missions, you have only a certain amount of time to complete them. And these are the temporal units that you have in order to complete them. Everything that you do costs a certain number of these. Right. You get transported to this time, and then you also have to choose your vessels. Obviously, it wouldn't do to be walking around, you know, ancient Egypt and have super futuristic people with laser guns and helmets on. So what they do is that you enter these sorts of time capsules and inhabit the bodies of people who actually lived in this particular place in this particular time. These are referred to as vessels. In the context of the game, you get to choose your vessel at the beginning, and each vessel has different stats. Usually, a vessel will have three different stats, but the stats vary depending on the scenario that you're in. 
So in the scenario that I mentioned in ancient Egypt, you might have physical strength, charisma, and cunning. In a scenario that's set in sort of, you know, contemporary Earth, you might have melee combat, gun combat, and, you know, charisma or dexterity. Something like that. Usually it's some combination of three stats that give you a pretty good coverage of the types of things that you'll be asked to do in this particular scenario. Yeah, exactly. And when you do take your vessels, you are then transported to a location. Now, these locations are denoted by cards. So these cards will have a picture that like each part of the card completes a different part of the picture. They're a linear kind of uh, almost mural kind mm-hmm. of thing. Very much so. And once you arrive at the location, you get to choose where each of your vessels goes within that. You get a bit of a description based on the card that introduces the location of like what exactly it is that you're looking at. And then everyone gets to go ahead, go to a location, and then pick up that card. And if you are the only one on that card, you have to take it, look at it, read it by yourself. Uh, if you have one other person there, you both look at it. But this comes up to one of the more important parts of time stories, which is there are restrictions on communication. Right. I can't pick up a card and just read it and like you know show it to everyone and everything like that. That is not part of the game, and that would make the game a lot less fun. Yeah. This is a pretty common theme in any sort of cooperative game, but especially so for co-op games that are based on puzzle solving. You know, if you have perfect information, that puzzle is going to be relatively easy. Whereas a lot of the difficulty comes from having to describe, having to convey exactly what your vessel is seeing without just saying, oh, the card says blah blah de blah um, And so it introduces levels of complexity and honestly makes the game more interesting. Exactly, exactly. So when you go to these locations, there is another thing that can happen. So you you look at them and it could give you just information, could give you the ability to buy something, to, you know, trade something else for another item or just take an item in general. But you might also have to take a test. So these tests are very much a core part of the gameplay. Absolutely. And what they are is they each are for like a specific skill or like it could be combat, it could be non-combat. It's it, it depends on what the test is. And some of them you could even use different things. Like you could have either combat or persuasion, for example, in order to succeed on the test. Mm-hmm. So what they do is when you encounter one of these tests, you take these shields that have either just a shield or uh, there could be a red skull on it, a time marker on it, or a heart on it. And you would put them out based on the difficulty that it states on the card for this test. So what you have to do is you have to have enough successes um, in order to remove all of the shields in order to actually pass that test. Right. So the way that you get the successes is by rolling dice. So they have these special dice for the game, which have either one pip, two pips, or no pips, or a red skull. So when you roll these dice, you roll based on your stats. If the test that you're taking is melee combat, and your character has a melee combat value of three, then you're going to be rolling three dice, and then based on the number of pips that you get, you'll be removing that many shields. Now, you do have to remove them in a specific order. You always remove them left to right. 
and you always remove all of one type before moving on to the next type. This is important because each of the different types of shields has different effects. After you complete a roll, if there are more red skulls showing between the dice or between the remaining shields than your character has armor, then you take one point of damage as sort of a riposte that the enemy deals to you. In addition, the other two special types of shields can cause you setbacks as well. If there's a black heart remaining, then you take one damage regardless of your armor. These are usually found on bosses or sort of chapter ending tests. These are designed to be very challenging, require a lot of effort to get through. And then the temporal units that are found on a shield, if there are any remaining, you deduct an additional temporal unit from your remaining total. So obviously with these, you really want to focus fire these down. You want to bring your heavy hitters to bear. Otherwise, you're going to be spending lots of resources and possibly risking failure just to get through this test. Yeah, and so this brings us to the use of the temporal unit. Once you've gone to that single location, when you first arrive at the location, you choose one card, you look at it, you resolve it. You then, in order to be able to take any other action, you have to spend a time unit. Right. So that's to show that you spent time here, you looked at that, now you're going to go to a different part of this, you're going to continue the test, you're going to do something else, and that costs time, of course. Those time units, of course, run out. And you have to be really careful with them because moving between locations costs time units, moving within a location also costs them, and also if you get stuck in a test, for example, if you have one that has a red lock on it, on the card, means that you can't get away. You have to finish it, and that might also suck a lot of time units. Exactly. So... All of these things work together. You're trying to jump around to the various locations, succeed at the different tests, in order to ultimately advance your final goal. And that depends on what the scenario is. Sometimes you might be trying to get to the bottom of a mystery. Sometimes you might be trying to rescue a particular person. Regardless of what it is, you're always following these same sorts of mechanics to get there. You're going to be transferring locations, you're going to be completing tests, and you're going to be collecting items. Like Jacob said, sometimes you're gonna run out of TU. When that happens, you just sort of, you get pulled out. Essentially, the way the game translates this is, it costs energy to keep your consciousness inhabiting these various vessels. So if you run out of TU, they have to pull you out and recharge the capsules before they can send you back in. Functionally, this just means you get another chance to try again using the full TU value and the information that you've learned. Importantly, most of this information is just going to be meta. It's going to be you knowing, okay, we went to this location last time, it wasn't terribly productive, let's try going somewhere else. But some of the items that you get, particularly things like access to new areas on the map or knowledge of where certain people are, are represented by tokens. And some of these tokens and some of these items will have a little symbol on them that say that you get to keep access to this even between your runs. So you can sort of progressively build a stronger starting point. It just takes a lot to get to that point. And eventually, ideally, you succeed, you finish your mission, and then at the end you get a score based on how many runs it took, how many TU you had left. Sometimes there are various extraneous challenges as well. Did you do it without this person dying? Did you blah de blah Mm -hmm. Um, And you get a score. And then based on that score, you get 
a little uh, little breakable pop out that you can use in a subsequent adventure to give yourself a one-time bonus. So it's all set up in a very sort of fluid campaign-style structure. You're expected to be jumping from one scenario to the next, but you don't have to, and you can obviously take it very freeform as well. Exactly, exactly. So that is the general overview of how the game is played. Now, these rules that that we've set out are very much a skeleton for the game itself. So they will be used for, you know, whatever setting we you want them to. So at the moment, there are four other expansions out for time stories, which give you extra cases and that kind of stuff. So these all um, use the rules in different ways. They can, you know, translate from modern day in certain situations to ancient times to uh, alternate realities even. And each of these has a slightly different use of the abilities, of the skills, and all that. And it's actually pretty impressive to see how well this system holds up in all these different ways. Mm -hmm. I think we were particularly impressed by the Prophecy of Dragons. Right. And they did an amazing job integrating everything there. It was something that was very, very different than all the other ones, but yet it worked extremely well. So it just shows the versatility of the entire system of just how that works. Right. And the other great thing about it is that they're designed to have a story to them and to be fairly difficult, but there's also more replayability than you might expect because you do get a score at the end. So even though you know you already know the story, you might know exactly what belongs where, there's still an element of chance involved with the roles. There's still optimizing the route to take. So you can always go back, play a scenario that you've played before, and try to get the best time possible. It's up to you whether or not you want to consider that a scoring run and take another little breakable chip. But it's definitely fun to explore with people that you know have played the game before and just gives it a a sort of surprising extra replayability value. Yeah, so one of the other things that we talked a little bit about but that is extremely important this is I would even call it a game component that was not included in the box. And that is that in order to play this game correctly, you need a notebook, a pen, and a note taker. Absolutely. Because without that, you are going to get lost. You're going to mess something up. You're going to forget a certain thing. Because this is very much like one of those 90s point-and-click adventure games where you get this one little tidbit of information a while back. And now you have to use that again going forward, you know, half the game later for this one little detail. So if you're not taking the notes well enough, you are going to miss that and you're not going to know what to do. So you really have to be careful about writing everything down and just remembering it all. It actually, it it makes it a lot more fun because, you know, you're describing everything to each other and then one person's writing it down because you don't want the person who's looking at it to just, you know, write down the exact card. So it gives it a really nice, pleasant interaction and also gives it that, like, oh, wait, I remember there was this on this card, but I didn't know it was important. And then, like, the next time you go through, you're like, make sure to write that down. Like, 100%. We have to look for that because otherwise we're not going to know what to do at this point. Yeah. It's a very important aspect of a game, especially since it is such an iterative process of 
going through your first run, figuring out what's where, what's important. Okay, let's reset, go through on the second run, do it more efficiently, and sort of building step by step, getting to a point where you can get through to the end game. Exactly, and it's actually pretty interesting because I remember there were a few times when we were playing this that it's like, the first time going through, we're just like, we're almost at the end. Like, we, we're, we're so close. And we were so wrong. We were extremely wrong. We were completely on the, you know, other end of everything. There was just, there was like another two-thirds of the game left. When we thought like, we're almost there. We can almost do it. We can almost do it. And then it's like, nope, nope, not at all. Yeah. But, I mean, that was a lot of fun because that was a whole bunch of discovery. It's like, you know, oh, like, this is going to get us to the end. We go through there. It's like, oh, my God. God, how much more is there? Yeah, there's an entire another chapter that we didn't even realize was going to be a thing. You yeah. Know, we just made it to like the halfway point. Exactly. We, we almost made it to the safe, safe point, you know, in the game. <laughs> right. So as you can tell from our description, the structure of the scenarios is very, very important. Each one is going to use the same skeleton, but it's going to have a dramatically different flavor. Um, it's going to be totally unique in terms of how it feels, how it plays. And that's one of the game's biggest strengths and also one of the game's biggest opportunities because in addition to purchasing and playing through their sort of pre-made scenarios the ones that they've constructed for you they actually have a toolkit that's available online where you can download all of the graphics all of the assets that are used in sort of the branding of the cards and you can create your own scenarios they give you all the tools that you need except the imagination and it really is a wonderful thing because more than anything else, when you buy the base game, when you buy the base box of Time Stories, what you're buying is a framework. And so the fact that there are other expansions out there that you can buy, but also that you can take that framework and do your own thing to it is really, really impressive and really wonderful. Yeah, we've yet to try any of the community build mods or of this game, the stories or anything like that. But I'm really looking forward to trying one of those because based on how this works, I'm sure that there's a really great community of just people who are creating stories for this. Because the system is extremely solid, in yeah. my point of view. Yeah, totally agree. However, solid is not perfect. And there are a few flaws that we can talk about. Yeah, so I'll start with obvious. And that is the cost. I mean, this is a criticism that's been going for this game just about since it was created uh, and put out. It's, you buy the box for, I think it's around 50 to $60, and it has one five-hour scenario in it. And, you know, you, it can take longer, depending on how well you're playing it, but it really is just one scenario. Yeah. And so that is a bit of a, a sink for money and it's just not it leaves almost a bad taste in some people's mouths and it's completely understandable and you know each of the expansions that's another twenty dollars each so in all you're sinking a lot of money into this small amount of relatively small amount of time and that huge investment relatively huge investment for a board game is even more compounded by the fact that not all of the scenarios are created equal this is something that we've observed playing in our group. It's something that some of our friends have said. And it's also criticism that I've seen online. Some of the scenarios are just not well-received. They're not as compelling as others. They're not as well-written as others. And so when you know, you're know you spending 
$20 to buy an expansion for this game, you're expecting that you're going to get a certain level of quality. And so the fact that that's not always the case does definitely put a damper on wanting to buy these pre-mades and sort of take the game to its own conclusion before branching out into your own created material or community-created material. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, there, there's more material out there that you can get for free, but as you said, the Marcy case and the Prophecy of Dragons, it's almost night and day. Yeah. But other than that, the last thing is, I think, a problem that's inherent in just how this game is a skeleton, that you, you need to put a flavor on and all that. And... What that is, is that there's rule ambiguity. Absolutely. And so uh, what I mean by that is that when you have the same basic rules and then you create you know, exceptions to those rules through the abilities and through what ca- certain characters can do, it brings up questions about can this count for a certain test or you know, can I use the, this kind of ability for this test? Because technically in the rules, it doesn't say you can't, but thematically it might not make sense to do so. Exactly. So you have to, you know, be careful with that. And it can be really hard to find out whether or not you're allowed to do something or not, especially because you're loath to look more into the deck or more into other things because you don't want to spoil anything. So... It can be hard to do that. It would be nice if they had a little bit more errata, a little bit more rules disambiguations, uh, and maybe some slightly larger rule books in the actual expansions to explain these other problems. Yeah. That being said, now that we've gone through the good and the bad of the game, what do you think? My final rating, I'm going to say buy it. This is a great game for all the reasons that we discussed. It gives you an amazing framework if you are willing to put the time into creating your own scenarios or an amazing framework to go and explore this community of people who are creating their own scenarios and sharing them you know, with other players. However, given its exact nature and given its highly narrative aspect, I would say probably only by one per gaming group. You know, It plays between two and four players So if you've got a group that's even larger than that, maybe even just buy one copy, have four people play it, and then pass it off to the next set of players. It's not something that I think you need to own your own copy of if one of your friends who you have reliable access to owns it. I'm looking at you, Jacob. Yep. Uh, I will uh, agree with that completely. I think that it's a great game, but... In order to justify the investment, it might be good to split it with your friends. So if you have a larger gaming group, buy it as a group and then just pass it around. Or one person buys the base, the others buy the expansions. However you want to do it, but make sure that it's passed around. Like I, I'm sure that once we're done with all the scenarios that I have, that, like you know, I'll lend it to some of my other friends, to other people, to like, you know, spread around this really good game. Because I'm not one who's going to be into you know just getting the most points on, on this scenario i enjoyed the scenario and now like you know i'm done with it right so at that point i'm just like okay here you know you play it because you're really gonna like it but uh you know it's not as much use for me anymore so that's our review before we cut away let's talk about at least one game that we think is similar to time stories and that's pandemic legacy Obviously, they're very different in terms of their style. This one is highly narrative. 
Pandemic Legacy takes the narrative and sort of maps it to the existing mechanics of, an, you know, an already existing board game. However, they are very similar just in that they're going to take you through a series of scenarios and they're going to have these sort of progressive mechanics that pop up that you're going to have to deal with and the game is going to evolve along with the players. Yeah, exactly. It's got that mystery, that discovery, and they're both the kind of games that you want to play with like a game group that's like, okay, let's play this through, let's like, you know, finish this kind of thing because they're just a lot of fun to experience with other people. Yeah, definitely. And there you have it. That's our review of Time Stories. Thank you again for joining us for this review of Time Stories. Be sure to check out our Wednesday night streams on Twitch and YouTube. We will be playing Zombicide and Seafall. Don't forget that WashingCon tickets are on sale right now. The convention is going to be from September 9th to 10th. It's going to be a lot of fun. There are going to be great people, some awesome game designers, and a lot of really cool prizes and everything. So we really hope to see you there.